This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Gabrielle Passmore, who truly has the best of both worlds. Gabrielle spends his weekdays working in the corporate world within Sydney and surfing the Bondi break in the evenings. But come the weekend, Gabrielle eagerly heads west to work on his family's cattle properties around Forbes and Condobla. In this episode, you'll hear how Gabrielle's own ideas have blended with his parents' traditional ways of running the farm and how they banded together pulling out all the stops to look after their stock and battle through the drought. Local Land Services District vet Jill Kelly caught up with Gabriel for a chat at the local cafe on one of his recent weekend trips home. Today I'm pretty lucky because I'm getting to chat with Gabriel Passmore. Thanks Jill, it's great to be here. You've got a pretty interesting lifestyle. I reckon a lot of people would be envious of the stuff you get to do. Tell me about yourself. Yes, I suppose it, it is pretty interesting. I actually live in Bondi and I work for a corporate that owns some agricultural land in Australia and New Zealand, but then I also help out on our cattle breeding and backgrounding operation based at Forbes on the weekends. When I picture that sort of lifestyle, I picture, you know, through the week, surf in the afternoons and then heading west on a Friday night and, you know, sunset outback horse rides on the weekends. Is that how it is? Uh, not quite like that all the time. I'd be lying if I said that there weren't a few early morning or late afternoon swims and the odd nice dinner, which is always nice. And then, yeah, being able to go go home and, and help out and, and live that bush lifestyle is pretty good as well. And so growing up, did you always see that that's how your life would head or, or were you like growing up, were you academic or were you out playing in the dirt or doing a bit of both? How, how did it all come about? Oh, I reckon if you asked mum when I was little, I was probably out eating a fair bit of dirt. Yeah, no, I, I think I always definitely have an interest in the bush and an interest in agriculture and particularly an interest in cattle. I think when I was younger, actually, dad sort of wanted to encourage me to potentially go down the road of being a, a, a doctor or a lawyer, but I think I might have spent a bit too much time studying sport and girls to be able to get the marks to go and do that. So I do think that, yeah, I always had a pretty firm interest in, in agriculture and definitely always wanted to return to my roots in one way or another. And maybe you kind of looked at your parents and, and thought that what they did was pretty good because I understand your dad was an ag teacher. Yeah, he was, yeah. So dad actually had a, a pretty interesting route to get to where uh, he is. So, so actually both of my grandfathers were doctors in Sydney. So both mum and dad actually grew up in Sydney and they met in the bush, both as teachers. So what happened was dad's father had a real affinity with, with horses and a great love of racehorses. I think much to the dismay of my grandmother sometimes when she wanted him to do things like buy a house or stuff like that. And apparently he always used to say, I know nothing about houses, but I, I do know about racehorses, so I'll spend the money on that instead. He did some really interesting things. Actually, he once drove a, a horse and sulky down George Street in Sydney. So it's a fair while ago. Wow. And he apparently used to do things like he'd see someone riding a horse that he liked and he'd go, I really like that horse, I'll buy it off you now and just give him cash on the spot and take the horse home. So he ended up buying a farm near Tugong, which is between Kudal and Yagara, and set up a horse stud. 
And so dad ended up finishing school. Uh, he went to ag college at Hawkesbury. He started working on the horse stud and then ended up, yeah, trying to trying to get another sort of income stream and a bit of a career path and he did teaching and he was a an ag teacher for the better part of 30 years, I think. Yeah, great. And so tell me about the farm that your family's on now. So we live southwest of Forbes, but we're a bit spread out. We've got a couple of other blocks. There's another one at Goolagong and then uh, one out west and the original farm as well. So it's actually about 150 kilometres from the furthest west farm to the furthest east and it's about 3,000 hectares in total. Yeah, so I guess being so spread out, there's a lot of work to do there and it must take a lot of input, so hence you need to come home on the weekends. Yeah, so I probably wasn't quite as involved as I am now pre-drought. So, so before 2018, I sort of, yeah, just used to come home for, for preg testing or calf marking or, or some of the bigger sort of events that were going on and, and didn't have as much of a hand. I came home in March 2018. I was between jobs and I was going to actually start my new job that I've got now. And I got home and saw how bad the conditions were, like the condition of the land and saw the condition of the cattle and I went to the hay shed and I counted up the amount of bales and I came back into the kitchen and said to mum and dad, there's exactly 17 days of hay left, what's the plan? Are we going to buy some more? And there probably wasn't too much of a plan laid out on the table apart from let's wait for a bit of rain. So I sort of thought I'd better yeah, stay and try and um, give me a bit of a hand. What was the plan after the 17 days? What did you do? The first thing we did was we consulted a, a, an animal nutritionist as well as the local land services vet in the area, Belinda Edmonston, and we spoke about the condition of the cattle, what was needed, what we had to do to try and try and get the best result for these cows going through winter because it was obviously going to be a pretty tough winter. And the, the plan was, or the, the plan that was laid out was to, to buy a lot of feed, get the ration right. I think, you know, before, before 2018, I had no idea uh, what animal nutritional requirements were. I think that's pretty typical of a lot of people going into the drought. Do you think that maybe people didn't really know how to feed, they just chucked a bit of hay out and that would have worked had it rained, but it just didn't rain? Yeah, and I think that was probably the mindset for a long time and it probably worked in previous droughts, you know, like I, I know talking to dad, that used to be it. You'd just have a bit of hay on hand and got dry at the end of summer before an autumn break and you'd just go and throw a bit of hay out to support them and, and, and then it'd rain and everything would be okay and you'd just be back to, to the normal system and unfortunately this time that didn't work. No rain did come and, and I know in my discussions with people across New South Wales that I spoke to about yeah, how much do you actually have to feed, like let's try and do some budgeting here, people just didn't know. People didn't know about feed tests, people didn't know about protein and ME requirements for, for the feed and it was, yeah, it was just always that old school system of throw a bit out and see how we go. Yeah, I think it was a really steep learning curve for lots of people but really tough to learn under those extreme conditions because I think by the time it cut in probably the cows were skinny so, you know, there was a lot of pulling them back up to do. Was yeah. that the case for your farm? Yeah, definitely. So, like, the first thing we had to do was wean everything straight away. So, we ripped all the calves off. They were probably a bit big. Ripped all the calves off straight away and tried to, to pile into trying to get a bit of weight back on the cows. But also, you know, we did, we did try and do it in a fashion where we weren't just 
shoveling really expensive feed down their throats and costing a lot of money. We did try and do it in a cost-effective way. And to be honest, it, it really probably in hindsight was still feeding for survival and not feeding for production. So we did actually have a relatively high mortality loss. Like I had to destroy a few cows that they, they couldn't get up or, or various things went wrong. The problem that we probably found was that, you know, compounding is not just a thing in finance. Like it's a thing in drought where when one thing goes wrong, then another thing goes wrong, and then another thing goes wrong. And that was continuous. You know, we had weak cows that were getting bogged in dams and the country spread out. So you'd be driving between all the country to go and try and feed everything and you didn't get a chance to check a dam and then you'd come back and there'd be a dead cow in there and that's depressing. So you've got to drag her out and go again. And, yeah, we started to, once those cows started calving, develop further problems with cows just walking away and leaving calves. So we actually ended up, we actually ended up buying 13 dairy cows from a dairy farmer and I think at one point the most calves that we had on them was 70. That's amazing. That's really innovative. I wouldn't have thought of that. I used to work in the Gulf of Carpentaria for a couple of years and a mate who lives up there with his family, they told me about it once, how they used to just buy a few dairy cows from the Darling Downs and they t- took them up there and they'd just whack potties on them. And uh, I sort of thought, well, if they can do it north of Cloncurry, I don't see any great reason as to why it shouldn't work here. And there was a, yeah, there was a few teething issues trying to get these old cows that had never actually had a calf suck on them before, getting them to accept the calves. So I think mum had sort of the week of hell trying to get these poor old cows to take these calves in the crush. But once they got on, yeah, it worked really well. Yeah, that's fantastic. How'd your weaning go? Did you manage to feed all those weaners? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting sort of the difference that we had in, in 2018 because then obviously in 2019 and again at the start of this year, we, we had to do a pretty radical wean. So those weaners in 2018, they were all pretty big. Just to go back to the problems that we had, like it wasn't only calves being abandoned, we had a big problem with pneumonia. It was prevalent. We had problems that we'd never seen before, like meningitis in the calves. So I actually spoke to a few people about getting ready for weaning in 2019. They said, oh, just mark your calves first because, you know, that's going to be a stress and you want to do that while they're on mum. So just bring them in, mark them, leave them on mum for four weeks and then you can be ready for weaning. And it turned out that was actually the wrong thing to do because it triggered a meningitis surge in the calves. We lost 20 calves out of one mob of about 150 just the next day. Wow. So in terms of then the actual weaning, in, in 2018, it wasn't too bad. Like we had a fair number of cattle to handle and the problem was feeding everything. So we knew we had to feed them cottonseed and we had to get this sort of high protein, reasonably high energy feed into them to get, actually get them growing. The problem we had was we didn't actually have the infrastructure to feed any of it out. And we had a problem with water infrastructure as well, which will probably come up a bit later, but the feeding infrastructure was a problem. So we knew we had to feed them on uh, high protein, high energy stuff. So we'd never fed cottonseed before. So we got a load of cottonseed, just got one B-double and you know, people sort of said, oh yeah, you can try and just work it out on a kilo a day and got some tractor tyres, cut the sides out, threw them in the paddock, a couple of old tubs and thought, all right, we'll we'll do what I've seen people do before in photos where you go out and have just a tray load on the ute and you shovel it out. If we'd done it that way, like that's all we would have done every single day was just take cottonseed. So we ended up getting cattle panels and it's funny, like, you know, until it's been done, like no one sort of knows. And I spoke to a couple of people and they said, oh, I don't know if that'll work. Like we, we dumped a load in the paddock first without cattle panels because people I'd heard were doing that and just accepting the waste. That got completely trampled and just completely ruined, which it's a $15,000 load of feed. That's pretty depressing. So then we 
got cattle panels and dumped it into cattle panels and it's actually just like a self-feeder. It just creeps in as they go and there's no waste and that was a terrific way of doing it. Oh, that's a great idea. That actually worked really well. That was really good for the wieners. So we did that for all the mobs. So we had piles of cottonseed everywhere where the B-double would literally just back up in the paddock into the cattle panels, dump both trailers in there, we'd close it up and then that was sorted. Then we had them on a little bit of grain that was just trail fed. We hadn't sort of got around to actually getting troughing setting up or anything like that because we were just running behind, you know, like we were just chasing our tail all the time trying to keep everything going. And at the time too, in 2018, we we're actually carting 50,000 litres of water a day because we'd run out of water on the home farm. So that compounded things. Wow. And then you spent a fair bit of money, didn't you, to put some water for infrastructure in? Yeah, we did. So, so we sort of started that program in... 2018 because we actually got all the dams cleaned out as well. Like we lost 40 cows in dams over 2018 into the start of 19. So we we couldn't get them all fenced up in time, you know, like because you sort of think, oh, well, just fence them out. But like we had four people running flat out trying to feed cattle and we didn't have the time and we probably didn't have the money to get contractors in to get organised to try and fence those dams out. But they did all need cleaning out anyway. So we had a, an excavator come in and he cleaned out every dam in every place, which was pretty good. And so then, yeah, we started a, a pretty big program where we've ended up putting in about 27 k's of poly, 100 troughs. Yeah, every place is pretty much completely watered. We, on the home block, we actually had to go down the road and drill a bore and run a pipeline up the road. But that place has never had water, so that's worked really well. Oh, fantastic. So you're a bit set up for next time, if there's a next time. Yeah, well, I think there will be next time. I think we all, we all know that's going to come. Yeah, no, we're a fair bit better set up. We, yeah, I do wish we sort of had some of that infrastructure before, but, you know, we've got a bloke who works for us who, uh, or he gives us a hand, I shouldn't say works for us, he just pokes around and gives us a hand when he, when he likes and he's a terrific old bloke called Doug Davis. He's actually the one who, he set up the water program, so he actually worked for Southern Cross for I think about 30 years, he's been in water all his life, so he took all the levels, set it up, figured everything out and... I remember once a, a mate from Julie Creek, he came down, he's buying a gyrocopter from Parks and he came and stayed with us for a couple of days and gave us a hand and he said to Doug, Doug, is this the worst you've seen it? And Doug had to think about it for a second. He said, oh, 44 was pretty bad. Nah, but I reckon this is worse. That's gone way back. Yeah, so it's pretty, yeah, it was pretty sort of indicative of, of what it was like. So then when we got to that 2019 weaning, like – we had a lot of calves there and, and we actually went pretty hard on them and we weighed them when we weaned them and the, the, the lowest weight was actually 41 kilos. Wow, they, they take some managing but you, you nailed it? Oh, they didn't all make it but yeah, no, like we did, I think we did an all right job, like we all pitched in and, and went pretty hard and I spoke to the, the vet a lot about how to do it, you know, so we gave them ad and and gave them a five-in-one. We tried to separate out the little fellas like that that bottom end to try and get them out and, and tried to get them on pellets and then we had them on pellets but we didn't have troughing for pellets because we'd never done it at that scale before so we had to build some troughs and all that sort of thing. We've actually now got self-feeders and those self-feeders have ended up being a, a, a real boon to the business, I think. I count that as a win. I mean, even if you lost a few, you probably sa- really saved your cows and I know that you've commented this to me before we started recording that your focus really shifted from spending all the time on the the individual animals and the you know the one sick one or whatever into the broad scale the bigger mob and the whole picture so if you feed the whole mob better rather than focusing on the one sick calf that you get a better outcome yeah definitely so when we started there was a real problem that we found with probably focusing 90% of the time and energy on 10% of the herd and those down cows and the sick calves and all those animals that really probably were never going to make it, but they were taking up a lot of time in trying to save them. Things like 
you know, things like finding a down cow in the paddock and that can take four hours to go and actually get her, pick her up, bring her back to the house, try and give her a bit of feed, like put a bit of Hartman's solution into her, all that sort of stuff to try and get her up and get her going and then by the time you do that, particularly too what we found, like we ended up bringing all the cattle back to the home block or back to the two, two closest blocks once we actually got the water set up because so much of our time was actually travelling. Travelling, getting there, feeding out, finding a problem, trying to deal with that problem, that took up time. Then you'd miss another mob and that's where the compounding came in. Like it just this snowball effect of just bloody everything going wrong. And once we were able to actually get ahead a little bit with a radical wean, which, which we had to do and we still lost some cattle in 2019 even though we did that, we were sort of a lot better into the tail end of 2019 into 20 where we had those cows in better condition uh, we didn't have those problems. Like we didn't have those problems of pneumonia in the calves. We didn't have the problems of cows going down. We didn't have the problems of meningitis where calves would just drop and start fitting in front of you and then peg it about 20 minutes later, which is pretty depressing. And it knocked Dad around a fair bit. Like he, he, he really got knocked around by that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you talk about compounding. It must really compound on your mental health too. Yeah, it definitely did. So I think that it had a, a really profound effect on Dad. And I think he, he definitely admitted himself, he sort of actually froze up. So what ended up happening, particularly with buying more feed and, and, and making some of those decisions was we, we just had to buy it, actually sort of committed to a fair bit of feed behind his back and just didn't tell him and then it sort of kept rolling in, which was good. But that decision making was made in conjunction with mum because it sort of it was it was pretty overwhelming and dad was spending so much of his time trying to get those sick animals up and going again and just putting so much time and emotion and and effort and energy into it that I think it was pretty draining for him and you could definitely see it in his face like it knocked him around a lot and in his eyes you know he just always looked pretty drained pretty sad because he's just seeing his life's work sort of melt away in front of him drought decision paralysis is a real thing isn't it I saw farmers mid-drought just, yeah, unable to make decisions. It, it really affects your decision-making. Definitely. It definitely affects your decision-making. It affects your decision-making with your business. I think you see things like tempers shorten. You see things like really poor decisions being made because uh, people don't take the time to step away and actually have a think because it's just the weight of the world on their shoulders. So then when they do actually finally make a decision, it's probably not the right decision or a good decision that they've had time to think about. So I've definitely seen firsthand it is a real thing. Sounds like that you might have been a, a saviour that came in and that really tried to help and that really made a difference. Can you tell me how your corporate background and the stuff that you've learnt and that you'd practice and and do in your corporate life comes into the farming and then vice versa. How does what you've experienced on the farm help your corporate life? So, yeah, I suppose – so I studied economics, uh, ag economics at university. Um, I suppose gave me a very basic knowledge of some stuff. I certainly didn't retain most of it, uh, particularly the statistics Sport stuff. and girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I probably wasn't much good at that either. No, but I think it, it sort of gave me a, a little bit of a background and in particular actually working for Paraway. So I worked for Paraway for about a year. That was really good. Work with some with some really, really smart people there who – they were sort of really good on number crunching, really having a – justification behind every decision and why you're doing it and actually running the numbers on whether or not something made economic sense and if it didn't, 
then don't do it. And they were actually also really good. Like I, I spoke to a couple of them, like Stuart Johnson and, and, and Michael Graham, who are still there during the drought about the decision-making that we were making just to try and have that sounding board about about what we're doing. So it certainly helped, I think, probably just in terms of having the tools in Excel in particular, and my Excel skills are terrible, but just being able to have it mapped out, be able to do some scenario analysis. So we sat down and sort of mapped out like, right, what's the point that we need to get to with these cattle? It's going to be when the next harvest is because that's when the next straw, the next hay, the next grain is going to be available and the price is going to come down. What do we need to do to get there? What are our sale cattle? How much do we need to put into them to be able to get them to a weight that we can get rid of them so we can bring some money back in and take some cost out by not having to feed them anymore? So the stuff that I learned in, in my corporate life, I think definitely helped in being able to uh, help with the business there. And then, and then I think growing up on a farm and having some practical first-hand experience in ag has probably helped in my, my corporate life just by, I don't know, I suppose being able to do a bit of a smell test as to whether something makes sense or not from a production point of view and that sort of thing. What about the opposite? So do your employers just love that you've got that, that true nitty-gritty playing in the dirt background help what you do in a corporate sense? Well... Yeah, I think so. They certainly have said that that was part of the reason why they hired me was because I did have that that knowledge. I, I do dearly like my employers. They're a lot of fun and I really enjoy working with them. And I think that within that business, it probably is a bit of a help to be able to bring that skill set to just look at assets and probably know where you know a bit of money needs to be spent, whether or not something looks sick or things aren't probably potentially going as well as they could. So what do you feel when you drive out of the city every Friday? And then what do you feel when you drive back in on Sunday? That is actually a pretty good question. It is a pretty good feeling, definitely. Yeah. No, driving out? Driving out. Yeah, driving out. Driving out's pretty exciting. Like I think I'm pretty lucky to be able to, you know, like literally wake up and, and walk down to Bondi and go for a dip in the morning before work. Like that is that is pretty special. And then be able to work in agriculture. I suppose if you can't live on the Castle Ray River you know, Bondi is your next best thing. That is very true, actually, yeah. I do remember once a bloke telling me that there's two great places in the world and that's Canamble and Bondi. Ah, uh, yeah, yep. He knew what he was talking about. Yeah, he was a local, so he might have been fibbing. But no, it is um, it is a really good feeling. I do really enjoy it. And I think that, that feeling of, of driving out and, and knowing that I'm going back and, and sort of planning out what I want to do for the weekend and what I want to get achieved and, and go and see the condition of the country, condition of the cattle. It's obviously a lot more fun now that it's rained and everything's going really well, but it is a really good feeling. And then, look, driving back in, it's certainly not tinged with too much sadness. I'm not sad that I'm going back because I've, I've got a great little spot that I live in and a great group of friends in, in Sydney. But I think certainly the excitement of getting out is really good. And I do, when I am driving back, I must admit, I do miss, miss the bush a bit. Like, it's very special out here. Yeah, variety is the spice of life. I'm interested in the mixing of generations. So you've come home onto the farm mid-drought, pretty stressful situation. Were you immediately received with open arms and were all your ideas accepted gladly or was there a bit of locking horns? Yeah, no, there's definitely a bit of locking horns. So I've come up with a theory for Dad. So I called Dad the board of directors, shortened to the board. And as a rule of thumb it's normally three years to get a yes out of the board to an investment decision or a change in the business. Mum and Dad used to pull a lot of heifers, so they used to help help heifers calving pull a lot of calves when we were doing a pure red shorthorn. 
that even when mum was teaching, dad and dad had retired by this point, or even when he was teaching, he would get up at three o'clock in the morning to check them and if there was a, a heifer calving that needed help, he'd try and pull it himself and if he couldn't, he'd wake mum up and when I was young, sometimes he'd give mum a rest and he'd get me up if when I was still at home and he'd go and pull the calf and I had a bit of a long think about it there for a couple of years and I sort of thought if I'm ever lucky enough to find a woman that wants to put up with me for the rest of her life and I can use a knife and fork so that might happen one day, I reckon that she probably wouldn't be overly thrilled with getting a cold hand on the shoulder at 3am to come and help pull the calf so I thought there'd have to be a better way to do it. I spoke to a couple of blokes, uh, in particular a bloke called Peter Falls who's from Finlay who was actually... He was a real, real help during the drought. I called him, I spoke to him probably every second day uh, during the whole drought and he helped us in, in sourcing fodder and yeah, all sorts of things. But I spoke to him about uh, using Wagyu bulls over the heifers because I think from memory the average birth weight something like 10 to 15 kilos lighter in a Wagyu than it is in a shorthorn. And so we uh, actually did an AI program in the first year because Dad was pretty hawky. It took me two years to convince him to be able to actually do an AI program, so two years, and then he finally relented and we did an AI program and that obviously then took another year, so it was pretty the much... The board. Yeah, the board. So I went to the board with the, with, yeah, with the proposal and the board approved it after three years and... Um, and then we finally, yeah, when I started dropping in year four, I think we only pulled, oh, God, it would have been 5% of the Wagyu's and we still pulled 60% of the Shorthorns, which is sort of the rule of thumb, which, you know, there might have been some other things in there as to why we were pulling so many, but be that as it may, that, that was what was happening. Then we tried it again another year and, yeah, sort of in year five, the boards turned around and said, oh, we should have done this years ago. Classic. That's often the way it happens. So... Then, yeah, in terms of the, the ideas that I had and, and the things that I was presenting, no, nah, there was definitely a bit of locking horns. Uh, and I think too, like given, you know, Dad has been doing it for a very long time. Like he's been bloody doing it for sort of 50 years and he's got a lot of experience and he's very good. Like I've never seen another farmer who's at good at animal health as my father. Like he is just on the money. And I think there was just so much to do that he sort of couldn't really process the ideas that were being thrown at him because he had too much on his mind. So it was just easier to say no to some of them and just say, no, no, we won't do that. We'll just keep focusing on this. So there were definitely a lot of things that took a bit of time to, to convince him to do. And, and look, during that period of time where he was suffering from decision paralysis, some of those decisions were just made for him. We just charged on anyways because we just had to. And, and that that wasn't made just by, by me, by any stretch of the imagination. Like I was very lucky in terms of having a, uh, an, an array of people whose judgment and advice I, I trusted. And so every decision that we made, I, I'd sort of try and run it past them, give them all a call. Does this make sense? This is what we're thinking of doing. How do you think this is going to play out? I'd then present that to mum and say, right, well, this is what I think we need to do. This is why I think we need to do it. This is going to be the probable outcome. And do you agree and can we crack on with it? And, and she generally give it a yes and then we'd, we'd charge on and then that sort of, yeah, ended up working out fairly well, I think. I reckon that if I was interviewing your dad here today, he'd probably mirror what you've said maybe. I don't know. He'd probably, you know, say, oh, we came home with all these ideas but most of them, you know, were pretty good and, and maybe now that we're through it and looking back, it was the perfect blending of skill sets. Yeah, quite possibly. It's funny you say that because being an old bloke, he doesn't know how to lock his iPhone. So we had a couple of times where I'd have a yarn to him when he was unloading feed and I was getting stuck into him about something that he hadn't done 
And he thought he hung up and he hadn't. He just put his iPhone in his pocket and I heard him talking to the truck driver. He said, oh, we scrap a bit, you know. I mean, he bloody forgets. I've been doing this for 50 years. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly spoken since and I think it probably was a good good blend. I mean, definitely there's no way that we'd be able to do it without him with his, his knowledge on animal health and everything else like that he's done. So I think it was it, it was definitely beneficial. But I think just, just some of that stuff where he'd never been through a period like that. You know, 2018 was the lowest ever rainfall year only to be beaten by 44, which Doug told us about, and 2019 beat 2018. So there was this real, a really profound sort of weight and and I suppose too in a sense potentially he's spoken about maybe a sense of guilt about not, you know, I don't know, foreseeing it. or there's no, Nobody could foresee it. Like everyone we spoke to, no matter how well prepared they were, were just like we've never been prepared for a time like this. And so I think the difficulties that, that, that he faced in that decision making and, and dealing with those big numbers because they can be big numbers when you're buying in fodder. Like we hauled straw from Riverton, which is 150 k's north of South Australia. And that's a big transport bill, you know, and trying to find it. And uh, the fear the fear that I got was running out, you know, like and that's why we, we just had to be ahead all the time. Like we had to be looking sort of six weeks out to know that we had the fodder secured because we had cows calving. We had really big problems that were going to arise if we couldn't keep the feed up to these cows and couldn't keep them in good enough nick to continue. And what sort of shapes you heard in now? Did you manage to retain some? What's happening this year? Yeah, so we're pretty lucky. We probably actually ended up retaining basically 100% of the cows. We had a 30% preg test rate in 2019, so 30% of the calves that we normally have, which was pretty depressing. The year before was probably about 70 and then 2017 was like 92% or something, you know, it was terrific on the back of 16, like that really good year and, and then it slowly went down and then obviously, yeah, the effects of the decisions in 2018 were reflected in the 2019 preg testing and subsequent calving rate although I would say that the calving mortality was a lot less even though it was a lot less calves the number that died in 19 was a lot less than than 18 but this year yeah it's been terrific we've sort of had about I think it's a 75% preg test rate which has been really good and um, we've actually made the decision to retain those empty females and give them another crack and, and try for an autumn calving which we never do in the hope to try and get back up and running as, as quick as we can. So everything's in in pretty good shape. We've actually had a bit of a problem with bloat, so it's quite funny you go from the worst drought that ever, anyone's ever seen. Like, I mean, our paddocks on every single block were like the tiles on this floor, you know, there was just quite literally nothing there to then going to, you know, what I can only assume the Garden of Eden probably looked like and just feed everywhere and then losing them to bloat because the feed's just so good, even though their feed had adjusted. But I suppose that's a bit the nature of the game. But all in all, I'd say it's looking really good. Yeah, great. And so what does the future hold for you? What's the grand plan? Uh, well, keep parking along here for a while as is, I think. I think I'd definitely, I'd definitely love to be able to probably move back at some point and, yeah, have more of a hand in the business than what I do now on a, on a bit of a day-to-day basis. But... Certainly for the time being, my, my, my day job's very interesting. It's very intriguing. I've got a lot of enjoyment and a lot of love for it. I'll keep doing that for a little while. And also, too, I do enjoy the water at Bondi. So it's nice to be able to still do that while I've got a, a bit of youth in me yet. And then, yeah, I think ultimately I, I'd definitely love to be able to move out to the bush probably and, and yeah have a family out there and that sort of thing. I think that'd be great. Fantastic. Well, I definitely think that you've got the best of both worlds at the moment. So keep enjoying it. And it's been great to meet and chat with you today, Gabe. You too, Jill. Thanks for that. No worries. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.